Well, we've been doing this series in listening to God. We've talked about how God speaks. He speaks through the creation. He speaks through the Word of God, the Bible. He speaks through the Spirit. We hear Him internally. Like Romans says, we have this voice in us saying, Abba, Father. And from that inner voice, we know that we're really His children. We read Galatians where it says the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit. And these two entities are inside of us contesting for our obedience, for our choice of will to follow them using thoughts and words. And then last week we looked at our conscience. We all have implanted within us a knowledge of what's right and wrong. And even... Non-believers have that capability. And then as though it was coordinated, last week Harmon did a really great sermon on willpower in part. And one of the things he said about willpower is studies show that it's a finite resource. That you you have the willpower to choose a certain way, but eventually it can be worn down. And one of the great things about Uh, the Christian life is we have the resurrection power of Jesus indwelling within us which is an infinite supply and when we learn to live in obedience when we learn to live in dependence on that power our willpower is non-exhaustible but it all starts with hearing it all starts with listening now we've been talking mainly about listening and, and understanding what God's saying But there's a big difference between hearing and listening and hearing the words and listening to the words and actually understanding. It's a big difference. And the best illustration I can think of of how that difference works is the situation of males speaking with females. So as you know, males are not nearly as verbal as females. You can see this in young boys and young girls. Young girls, when they're playing, they talk. What is your baby doing? Well, my baby is doing this. Well, let's take your baby over here and do that. Okay, let's let's pretend that you're the mommy and I'm the. You know, they they just talk. And boys make truck noises. <laughs> boys shoot guns. So if you listen to girls talk, hey, beep, 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 and the girls are oh, boys are rather are oh, crash bang. This this is the difference. So girls like words and boys like dump truck noises. Well, this never changes. And if you, if you have paid attention, you know that men have this interaction with women where they, they, they sort of know that they're supposed to be listening to the words and they're coming in, but they've got what's actually going on in their mind is dump truck noises. <laughs> And they do have one little loop, all men have this, where the last 10 or 15 seconds of what the woman has said is being recorded. So while the dump truck noises are going on, if that awful moment comes where she says, well, don't you think so? You can replay that last 10 seconds and have some sort of a response. Well, that's because there's no real communication happening. The best column I've ever seen on this is a Dave Barry column. It's called The Difference Between Men and Women in a Conversation. Let's say a guy named Roger is attracted to a woman named Elaine. 
He asks her out to a movie. She accepts. They have a pretty good time. A few nights later, he asks her out to dinner. And again, they enjoy themselves. They continue to see each other regularly. And after a while, neither one of them is seeing anybody else. And then, one evening when they're driving home, a thought occurs to Elaine. And without really thinking, she says it aloud. Do you realize that as of tonight, we've been seeing each other for exactly six months? And then there is silence in the car. To Elaine, it seems like a very loud silence. She thinks to herself, geez, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's been feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Roger is thinking, gosh, six months. And Elaine is thinking, but hey, I'm not so sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had a little more space so I'd have time to think about whether I really want to keep going with the way we are, moving steadily forward. I mean, where are we going? Are we just going to keep seeing each other at this level of intimacy? I mean, are we headed towards marriage, toward children, towards a lifetime together? Am I really ready for that level of commitment? Do I really even know this person? And Roger's thinking, so that means it was, let's see, February. When we started going out, which was right after I had the car at the dealer's, which means, let me check the odometer. Whoa, I'm way overdue for an oil change here. (laughs) And Elaine is thinking, he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe I'm reading this completely wrong. Maybe he wants more from our relationship, more intimacy, more commitment. Maybe he has sensed, even before I sensed it, that I was feeling some reservations. Yes, I bet that's it. That's why he's so reluctant to say anything about his own feelings. He's afraid of being rejected. And Roger's thinking, and I'm going to have them look at the transmission again. I don't care what those morons say. It's still not shifting right. And they better not try to blame it on the cold weather this time. What cold weather? It's 87 degrees out, and this thing is shifting like a garbage truck. I paid those incompetent thieves $600. (laughs) And I thinking, he's angry. And I don't blame him. I'd be angry too. I'd feel so guilty putting him through this. I can't help the way I feel. I'm just not sure. And Roger's thinking, they'll probably say it's only a 90-day warranty. That's exactly what they're going to say, those scumballs. And Elaine is thinking, maybe I'm just too idealistic, waiting for a knight to come riding up on his white horse while I'm sitting right next to a perfectly good person, a person I enjoy being with, a person I truly do care about, a person who seems truly to care about me, a person who's in pain because of my self-centered schoolgirl romantic fantasy. And Roger's thinking, warranty. They want a warranty? I'll give them a warranty. I'll take their warranty and stick it right up there. Roger, Elaine says out loud. What? Says Roger, startled. Please don't torture yourself like this, she says. Her eyes beginning to brim with tears. Maybe I should never have... Oh, I feel so. She breaks down sobbing. What? Says Roger. (laughs) I'm such a fool, Elaine sobs. I mean, I know there's no night. I really know that. It's silly. There's no night and there's no horse. There's no horse? Says Roger. You think I'm a fool, don't you? Elaine says. No, says Roger. Finally glad to know the correct answer. It's just that, it's just that, I need some time, Elaine says. There's a 15-second pause while Roger, thinking as fast as he can, tries to come up with a safe response. Finally, he comes up one he thinks might work. Yes, he says. (laughs) Elaine, deeply moved, touches his hand. Oh, Roger, do you really feel that way, she says. What way, says Roger. (laughs) That way about time, says Elaine. Oh, says Roger, yes. 
Elaine turns to face him and gazes deeply into his eyes, causing him to become very nervous about what she may say next, especially if it involves a horse. (laughs) At last she speaks. Thank you, Roger, she says. Thank you, says Roger. Then he takes her home, and she lies on her bed, a conflicted, tortured soul, and weeps until dawn, whereas when Roger gets back to his place, he opens a bag of Doritos, turns on the TV, and immediately becomes deeply involved in a rerun of a tennis match between two Czechoslovakians he never heard of. (laughs) A tiny voice in the far recesses of his mind tells him that something major was going on back there in the car, but he's pretty sure there's no way he would ever understand it. Dump truck noises. And so he figures it's better if he just doesn't think about it. The next day, Elaine will call her closest friend, perhaps two of them. They will talk about this situation for six straight hours. In painstakingly detail, they will analyze everything she said and everything he said, going over it time and time again, exploring every word, expression, and gesture for nuances of meaning, considering every possible ramification. They will continue to discuss this subject off and on for weeks, maybe months, never reaching any definite conclusions, but never getting bored with it either. Meanwhile, Roger, while playing racquetball one day with a mutual friend of his and Elaine's, will pause just before serving, frown, and say, Norm, did Elaine ever have a horse? (laughs) So you see there's words being exchanged. Very little understanding. Well, this is kind of the way it works between us and God a lot of the time. The responsive side of the relationship So when you're a male with the dump truck mind and you're supposed to be the responder, it's a double challenge. So this isn't really important for all of us, uh, particularly the males. But as we're going to see here, it's a big, big deal for the females as well. So we're going to talk about real communication, which involves both understanding and deciding. What that is called in the scripture is obedience. It's not all that popular of a topic these days. We've got permissive parenting, and that kind of turns into permissive theology, where God is supposed to be a permissive parent, a helicopter parent who stands over us all the time, making sure that nothing goes wrong while we get to do whatever we want to do. That's kind of our view of God. And it's just not reality. So we're going to talk about obedience and what the Scripture really says about it. And the first point is going to be not whether, but who. Second point is going to be that it starts with hearing God's voice, then involves a decision. Hear, then decide. The third point will be that obedience can actually be done very legalistically, interestingly enough. So there's obedience and there's obedience. There's obedience that really isn't obedience, and then there's true obedience. And then we're going to have a little surprise at the end that may involve Roger and Elaine. There's some really well-known passages that we're going to look at that actually are about listening, hearing, and doing. And so when we put it in the context of listening and thinking about actually communicating like Roger and Elaine were struggling to do, it may bring some new insights. So let's look at Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 15, very, very famous passage. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. In Romans is a book by the Apostle Paul, a letter written to the Roman believers, the Gentile Roman believers in Rome. The only letter he wrote to people he didn't already know. And the reason he's writing the letter is because 
some competing authorities have gone to Rome and they're slandering Paul's gospel and they're saying that Paul is teaching that sin is good. What you ought to do is sin as much as possible because by sinning as much as possible, you're showing that God's more, even more gracious. And that's how they're characterizing Paul's teaching. And Paul calls it slander. And Paul recognizes that if his teaching is slandered in Rome to these group of believers who he says in chapter 1, whose faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world, if you have a group of people whose faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world in the town that's in the center of the whole world, it's not going to be too long before, before your message is being trashed in the whole world. And so God has given him this message as a stewardship, and he's writing this letter to counter this slander. And the specific way the slander is articulated is, the, these uh, competing authorities are saying, Paul's message can be summed up in this phrase, we should do evil that good may come. We should do evil that good may come. The reason they're saying that is because of 520, where he, where he says, more of a law entered, the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So Paul's core teaching is that we cannot do good enough to bridge the gap between us and God. Jesus has to do that. And Jesus died not just for some sins, but for all sins. So no matter how much we sin, we cannot out-sin the grace of God. That's his big point. So then he says, since that's true in 6.15, that we cannot outsend the grace of God, should we continue to sin? Because we can, and God will still forgive it through, the, through Christ. Should we do that? Because we can. And this is what the, the people that are contesting Paul are objecting to. They're saying that, no, no if, you don't, if, you don't, if you really accept Jesus, then you won't sin as much. Or if you... Uh, you must accept Jesus and be circumcised and follow the law. It's all one package. And then, and Paul's saying, no, no, that's not right because we can't do that. So he's saying, should we continue to sin? We're not under law, but under grace. Certainly not. And, here, and here's the key point. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? So you see... It's not a question of whether to obey. And this is an important point. But who to obey? We don't actually get the choice of obeying no one. We've got the flesh and the spirit contesting within us. And the only question is, which one are we going to submit to? The flesh or the spirit? And whichever one we submit to, we're going to be that one's servant. We're going to be that one's employee. We're going to be that one's slave in this, in this sense. So if you choose sin, which you can, why? Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. If we choose that, then we get, as a result, death. If we obey right thinking, we get right living or righteousness. That's our fundamental choice. So we have the spirit and the flesh contesting they are contesting by telling us things. And we get input. We get words. We get thoughts. We get images. We get stories. And we have to sort out what's true, what's right, which we have the power to do through the Spirit, through our conscience, through our dipping our conscience in the Spirit, and making a decision of which one do I want to follow. 
Of course, one of the flesh's favorite tricks is to say, don't obey anyone, just obey yourself, which is becoming a slave to sin. So this is a pretty big deal. Not whether, but who. Now, can we tell the difference? Well, yes, we can. What did Jesus say? My sheep know my voice. They know my voice. So we can tell. Uh, again, I mentioned this Romans passage where it says we say, Abba, uh, sorry, we have this voice in us that says, Abba, Father. And from that alone, we know that we're his children. So we can hear his voice. We have the power to discern. In the book of James, chapter 1, it says, Consider every circumstance you come into a blessing, even if it's difficult. And if you find that that's a tough thing to do, if you find that that's hard, then ask God for wisdom, because He'll give you wisdom to understand that. So there is a desire on the part of God to give us input, to give us wisdom, so we can choose a perspective. There's only three things you get to choose in life. Who you trust, the perspective you have, and the actions you take. Those are the only three things we get to choose. Everything else is somebody else's choice, uh, a circumstance that we can't really control, But one of the things we get to choose is our perspective, and that's what wisdom is, largely. It's a true perspective. So that's number one. It's not whether, but who. Number two, let's look at Psalm 95. Psalm chapter 95. It starts with hearing God's voice, and then we choose. 95 verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For here's our God, we're the people of his pasture. It's all famous, it's a song that we are familiar with. And the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it's a people who go astray in their hearts, They do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So first is hear. Today, hear his voice. The first thing is hear. Now, of course, we can just not hear. That's always an option. Like Roger. We can just have dump trucks going on and and the information comes in and we just don't process it. That doesn't mean God's not speaking. So the first thing is hear. But then the second thing is to do. And here in this passage, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's a people who go astray in their hearts, it says in verse 10. So this is a situation where the children of Israel heard perfectly and just made a choice that that's not what they wanted to do. Now unfortunately, this is kind of what we're born like. Uh, we have grandchildren. We have one that's a negotiator, and she kind of starts off with, uh, what do you want? Now, the reason she wants to know that is because that will determine what she wants, which is the opposite of what you want. And the second thing is, what do I have? Because that determines what she wants, which is whatever she doesn't have. So then the negotiation starts, how can I get what I don't have and and have life go Not like you want, but like I want. And if you change what you want, she'll just flip right around and take the other side. Because 
The point is to win. It's not actually to get a certain thing done. And this is just kind of a good little expression of the human heart. She's just uh, capable of expressing what we do as a, on the, uh, naturally. And as we get older, we get more sophisticated about hiding that that's what we're really doing. But it's kind of the same uh, heart. So let's look at Exodus 17 and actually look at this, this little uh, episode that the psalmist is talking to us about here. Exodus chapter 17. And here's the, here's the situation here. Let's start with verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So here we are. We're in the Exodus. Uh, God said, hey, go, go from here to there. They did that. At this point, they've seen the ten plagues. They've lived through the Passover where... When they did what God said, their children lived. And when the Egyptians didn't, their children died. They've seen the Red Sea part. They walked through the Red Sea. And the fire by night and cloud by day protected them. And then when the Egyptians started through, the sea covered up. They've been now eating manna every morning. Manna is the word for what is it? Because it's something no one ever seen before. Because God's miraculously feeding them. So this is the experience they've had up to this point. And they get theirs and there's no water. So the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Now, hasn't God given us provision so far? Well, yeah, but we're thirsty. What about now? What's he going to do now? The people thirsted there for the water and the people complained against what Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord and said, What am I going to do with these people? They're most ready to stone me. The Lord says to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river. It's one of the plagues. You know, he hit the river and it turned into blood. And go, and behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, so he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, which means strife and contention, because of the contention of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, and here's what they were saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? I mean, come on, where is he? Well, you know, he did that cloud by day and that. Yeah, but is he here or not? I mean, we're, we're thirsty. What about now? We need something now. Where is God anyway? Well, he did the Red Sea. Yeah, but where is he now? I mean, now. You know, you had manna every morning. Yeah, but but that's what he... Well, I mean, I'm talking about now. I got a problem, man. I need his provision now. My way, my time. Let's... Well, Problem. That's kind of what we do. Uh, he tells us why he did this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is now the second generation after the 40 years. And they're about to go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, now Moses is speaking and giving them the law again before they go into the land. 8 verse 1, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. So there's hear and do. 
that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your father. See, obedience has consequences. And you shall remember the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. See, there's a reason why God gives us a choice here and then you choose. Now, isn't that amazing? Here, then you choose. Are you going to obey or not? And what God's giving us is an obstacle course of life here where we get to make lots of choices. And he wants to know, are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow sin? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow your own way? Which is it? Which is it going to be? Why would he do that? That he might make you know that man shall live not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. See, it's this ingestion of words where we hear and do that actually brings life. What God's doing by giving us these difficult things to hear and do is giving us life. He says in John 17, when he's praying to his Father, he says, And this is life, that they may know you, and that they may know me. And this is how we know. This is life. Without these difficulties where we have to hear and choose, we can't really know. And I like to say, this is the only time of our existence where we'll get to know God by faith. There's three great things, faith, hope, and love. Only one remains when we see God face to face, and that's love. Faith and hope are gone. You can't believe in what you see, you can't hope for what you have. And this precious, precious time where we can come to know God by faith is a spectacular time. It's interesting, this is what Jesus cited when he was resisting Satan. He cited this passage. And he says, I am living in obedience to my Father because I understand life. Jesus got to walk by faith. Even the God of the universe who made everything emptied himself and got to know God by faith, which is really crazy. Which kind of introduces the next aspect of this hear, then do, that we have to hear, then make a choice. And it's the paradox of God, that you have a sovereign God letting us decide. Let's look at Jeremiah, which is, I think, the kind of epitome of this notion. Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Here we go again. There's a word. Jeremiah hears. Jeremiah understands. Jeremiah has to make a choice. Am I going to tell the people the word that God told me to tell them? Even though God tells him they're going to reject you. But I want you to tell them anyway. And they sure do. They try to to, uh, take this out on Jeremiah. But the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I'll cause you to hear my words. So he's going to give him not only the words, but a visible illustration. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. So you get it in your mind, the picture. Uh, They still use these today. You've got a wheel turning, and so you've got a foot pump, and the wheel's going around. And the potter holds their hands. They dip, dip it in the water, so they hold their hands, and they shape 
the pot by shaping their hands with the with the water and the wheel turns. You've got that picture in your mind. He's watching them do that. And he's making something at will. And the vessel he made of clay was marred. So he made something and it had a mistake in it. So he just starts over, lumps it back up, and then starts over again. Then the word of the Lord came to me when that happened and said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I'll relent of the disaster I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and plant it, if it does evil in my sight so it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. So here you've got God who is the potter and can do as he pleases. But look what he's doing. He is responding to the choices that other people make. Isn't that crazy? He can just cause us to do. He doesn't have to give us this choice. But he does. And why? Because he made us in his image. C.S. Lewis says, through one of his characters in The Great Divorce, we are most like our creator when we're making choices. Because that's what God does. Every time we make a choice, we have the opportunity to create something that wasn't there before. It's really a spectacular, amazing thing that we get to do. But it starts with hearing and listening and then making a choice. Are we going to follow what God says or are we going to harden our hearts? Uh, Last week we saw that we can sear our conscience. And the Greek word was cauterize. We We can iron it over so that we don't even hear that voice anymore. Which are we going to do? We know that it's not whether but who. We're going to obey something, somebody. But obedience can also be legalistic. Let's look at another famous passage, 1 Samuel 15. And maybe from now on, as you read through the scripture, you have more attuned to all the different times it says, hear, listen. It's pretty common all through the scripture. I don't think I was quite as attuned to it as I hope I will be going forward. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 10. So now we have... Saul, the first king of Israel, in chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So Saul heard, he did not do. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. So here we are, God coming and saying, I'm sad because Saul didn't do what I told him to. And the minute Saul sees Samuel... The agent of God, he says, I'm so happy I did just what God told me to. He's got a little 
got a little conflict going on here. But Samuel said, well, then what's this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Because God had told Saul to go and destroy all the animals and all the people of the in this particular circumstance. And Saul said, well, they brought them from the Amalekites because the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to God, of course. And the rest we utterly destroyed. So see, we, we, did, we did even better. I, I not only did what God told me to, I did better than that because he told me to destroy everything and I destroyed everything except the best, which we're going to you know, keep for God. And Samuel said to Saul, be quiet and I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said, speak on. Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you? I'm sorry, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on a mission which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. See, he also saved the king. But the people took the plunder of sheep and oxen, the best of things which have been utterly destroyed. So I actually, I obeyed, but the people didn't. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And here is what we do. We take some religious good thing, maybe it's church attendance, maybe it's Bible study, maybe it's a certain type of speech, maybe it's abstaining from some kind of behavior, all of which may be good in and of itself, and we make that an excuse for not doing what God actually tells us to do to love other people or to perhaps reach out to someone who's not so godly or whatever he's, whatever he's asking us to do. And what he's saying here is because God's the one that told him to sacrifice. But he said, you know, when you use one thing I told you as an excuse not to do other things that I told you, that's not actually obedience. That's just legalism. So obedience is a thing that comes of faith. It comes from doing what God actually tells us to do, not by taking part of what God tells us to do and using it to justify our actions. Galatians is written around this whole notion in Galatians 2.17. It says, if we seek to be justified and are found sinners, does that mean Jesus is a servant of sin? And this is what the Galatian believers were doing. They were seeking to be justified. Let me ask you, is it a good thing for a believer to seek to be justified? No, we're already justified. If we're seeking to be justified, what are we saying? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't good enough. It's that plus something. And what we're always doing is seeking to be justified in the sight of men so we can be justified in our own minds. Which is a replacement for faith. It's a replacement for trusting God. It's a kind of a crooked way of trusting ourselves in the name of God. So those are the three things. And now i got the surprise. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. I've got a little surprise for you about listening. Wives, so we've got Elaine here. We'll get to Roger in a second. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. So here there's some husbands. They hear, they choose not to do it. Okay, so they, what, what are they doing? They're disobeying, right? 
They're either not listening to the Word, not hearing the Word, or hearing the Word and choosing not to follow it. Even if they do not obey the Word, they will, without a Word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Isn't this spectacular? I don't think women generally understand the power that they have with men. Uh, I mentioned uh, the Pixar movie uh, Inside Out last week. And one of the scenes in there is you've got a 13-year-old boy and he, he comes into contact with a 13-year-old girl and they show inside of his head and all the characters are on like a three-fire alert and all the signs are going, girl, girl, girl. And all the characters in there are going, ah! They're freaked out with fear. Well, that's men. That's, that's the way we are. We hate female rejection. And we interpret things. as, And we love female responsiveness. It's so amazing. As a matter of fact, we will pay to get imaginary people on the internet to respond to us. How about that? Give money. And they're imaginary. And we pay for it. That's how crazy we are about female responsiveness. And as a matter of fact, we will buy shaving cream for ten times what Barbasol costs because of an imaginary woman on TV. But when you have a responsive wife in verse 2 when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied with fear and what that looks like is you have a godly woman who's living a godly life caring about what the man thinks that's a phobeo what was a fear like it's not fear like I'm afraid you're going to hit me it's what do you want I care about what you care about which is tough because what do we care about dump trucks so you got you got to figure out how to be responsive to a dump, dump truck brain. You got man. How do you how do you respond to that? Well, you respond to that with this godly life, and and look what it started with in verse one. They without a word. Now, why would it say without a word? Because you got to use dump truck noises instead. <laughs> Now, for you, that's going to be physical responsiveness, mostly. Emotional responsiveness. If you'll look at just advertising women, uh, especially like male products of any kind, just notice the male products. Look at the expression on the women's face when they look at the man in the advertisement. It's so adoring. It's just like our golden retrievers when you scratch them on the, uh, when you scratch them on the belly. You know, they just... They just look up. You're the most wonderful thing in the world. Look, look it down here in verse 5. For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted God adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah called Ab- obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. If you can make a man feel like a king, it's a pretty good chance he'll do whatever you want him to do. Without words. Isn't that crazy? So this is a way to a man's heart to actually get to God's obedience to God. Isn't that nuts? Understand your power. But now we've got to get to Roger. And we've got to go to Ephesians to see Roger. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Now this is funny. This verse is in almost every marriage ceremony, Christian marriage ceremony. They never read on to the, the actual hard part. Husband, love your wife as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, I do have to tell you, I have had women tell me that what this means is you're supposed to do whatever the woman says. 
So let's just throw that one out. That's not what we're just talking about. Because I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't do whatever we tell him to. Uh, husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church. How did he do that? Gave himself for her, put, put the church before himself, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by... Dump truck noises! No. Washing of the water by the Word. So here's the painful part, guys. We're supposed to love our wives by using... Words. That's tough. I know that's painful. Why is that painful? Because the words come in torrents. And they're not connected. And they're not really going anywhere. Or so we think. Or so we think. They actually are going somewhere. The problem is they just don't know where. And what they really want is for us to help them find where it is without them having to tell us, I don't know where I'm going. Can you help me? And then it turns out when you do help them get somewhere, they get mad at you. Because you solved something. And they didn't really want to solve something because now they have to change. None of us want that. So that's... What Jesus does, he washes us with the water of the word so we can become all he intended for us to be. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Oh, I missed the not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing should be holy and without blemish. We're supposed to help our wives become awesome using words. And look what happens. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh and bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined his wife. The two shall become one. So this is our part of becoming ones, learning how to use words. And this can be, if you're a man, a few words, which I know many are. This can be mostly listening and asking strategic questions and fighting off all the, all the thoughts about changing oil and transmission. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see she respects her husband. So one of the things that happens is when we do this, verse 27, he might present her to himself a glorious church so that what happens is when we love our wives, we love ourselves because since we're one and as we help our wives learn to be awesome, They actually, since they're a part of us, they help us become awesome. So it's painful. It's painful. It's painful to use words when you have a dump truck mind. But it's actually something that on a delayed basis comes right back to us. And women, it's painful to have a knucklehead man, one-track mind, dump truck mind, clueless about most things and say, how can I serve you? How can I care what you care about? You're trans- changing the transmission. How can I figure out? How, tra- you know, how do I care about that? It's painful. But look what happens. That helps your husband actually learn to listen. And when your husband learns to listen, then he can change. And he can become more like Christ. And now you've got the two of you doing what is, is difficult, but loving one another, and the oneness just flourishes. And it all starts with listening. Listening, hearing. Hearing, making a choice. Making a choice to say, I will follow 
the Spirit instead of following the flesh. And understanding this is what love is. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the differences that you've made. The fact that these differences can be unified in you and that we can have oneness both with one another and with you as well. I pray that you give us the wisdom and the courage and the knowledge on how to listen, how to listen effectively, how to use words and thoughts effectively, how to choose your way that we may have life, how to combine with one another in a way where we have harmony and fellowship and oneness. And eternal life will be something we experience daily. In Jesus' name, amen.